This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Welcome into the program, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Thank you so much for being with us here on the program. I'm Caleb Colquitt, as always. So let's get started with the news. There is quite a bit of news today. And uh, it's interesting because I actually got the rare opportunity to be there present. I'm not a reporter, so I typically don't do this. I just comment on the news that's already been produced. But I actually was going out and covering the Love Matters march that happened on the Capitol steps of the Capitol here in Montgomery this past Thursday. But the uh, unfortunate thing is, because it was blinding outside and screens tend to not work in the sunlight for whatever reason, uh, you really just, I mean, you can't see it. Um, through nothing but error on my own part, the coverage was not on because I hadn't set something right in my phone or whatever. And so there was, uh, we were supposed to be broadcasting live on News Radio 1440, and I didn't realize that we had not been broadcasting until after I got back to my truck and could actually see my screen. So, unfortunately, the actual raw footage that we took was not there. There were several other news outlets there that were covering the event, so it's not like I was the only one or that there are, uh, there's no video footage of all this, but I figured I'd go ahead and give my review since I wasn't able to do my live commentary there on Saturday like we had intended to. But the overall turn, uh, tone of the event itself was superb. It was not something that was intentionally divisive. In fact, it seemed like they were going out of their way to be accommodating to everybody there. And uh, one thing that I really wanted to applaud the leadership and the people that came together on, they actually, when they got together, one of the very first things that they did before they went to the, the prayer and then the march that went down the street, they went to the Fountain Plaza, uh, one of the very first things that they did, and they actually did repeatedly throughout the event, was applaud the police officers and thank them for the service that they do, for having a very difficult job. And they they specifically said in that particular event, look, we, we know that the stuff that has happened in the country that we've seen with police officers behaving badly, we know that that's not y'all. We, we know that that's not something that is indicative of police officers as a whole. And so it was very amicable to law enforcement. I saw several law enforcement people out there talk to them. Uh, at no time did they feel like they were unsafe or that the people there didn't like them or anything like that. Uh, they understood and, and actually worked with the people that were there marching and helped them make sure that they were safe when they were walking down the road there. So like, Everything, so far as I could tell, went off more or less without a hitch, and the police officers were uh, a big part of that. They really helped with that. Uh, one thing that I would like to bring up, and I love to see this as well, I just want to give a shout out to Chris's Hot Dogs in downtown, and that's my dog, who both provided hot dogs for the people that were gathering there. And uh, the interesting thing about it is, and I've been demonstrating at different locations for different causes for, uh, I would say, a considerable amount of my adult life. I don't think I've ever seen a protest, or I don't even know if it's right to call it a protest. They didn't really refer to it as a protest. They called it a rally or a march. But I, I don't think I've ever seen a political demonstration of any kind basically turn into a block party afterwards. So that was really interesting. Granted, I didn't stay for much of that because I was already pretty hot and I wanted to get home. 
uh, I just kind of watched the the events unfold, and once the official part of it was older over, I kind of took off after that. But uh, I got to tell you, man, it was uh, it was really interesting to see that because at the end they just started playing music and hanging out, and uh, some people were dancing, that kind of thing. So the overall tone was pretty good. There were a handful of times where somebody said something that I disagreed with. And that pretty much revolved around the things that I had issue with is when they talked about things like systematic racism. But even when that happened, it was very brief. They didn't go into detail. And the thing is, I don't have to agree with absolutely 100% of every syllable of every word that a person utters to feel like I'm on the same side with the person. I would not hesitate to, with any of the people there, hesitate to have a conversation with them. They were all very kind, very friendly. And as far as the demographics of the crowd went, I would take a, a guess and say it was about 70% black, 30% white, which, I mean, should be about what it ought to be, shouldn't it? Because that is the population of Montgomery. It's about 70% black and 30% and white. And so um, the overall, I'm sure that there's Korean and, and Hispanic and, and other, well, Korean's a nationality, not an ethnicity, Asian and Hispanic mixed in there some, and, and there were a couple in there that I'm sure had that as well. Uh, not to, you know, overly emphasize the demographics of the crowd, because I think that that's something that's really unimportant as long as people are ideologically there for the same reasons. But overall, just looking through the crowd, uh, the people there that were represented racially were more or less along the lines of what Montgomery as a whole is, which is a really positive thing to see. And I'll say this as well, uh, because I, I already touched on this a little bit when we were talking about the lead-up to it a few days ago. I think uh, it was on Wednesday when I was talking about this. Uh, the, the city of Montgomery was at least consistent. Uh, and by that I mean I thought it was wrong for them to kind of uh, try to keep this thing from happening and say that they shouldn't be out marching and because of the virus, but at least they were consistent with the protest earlier. Now, I will say that one significant difference uh, is the way that everything was handled, because, of course, with the initial protest, the Get Back to Work Alabama that we were talking about, that uh, something that I also attended, uh, with the Get Back to Work Alabama crowd, the difference is they shut down the road there uh, for construction, knowing that it was a drive-through protest, knowing that that was part of the protest as a drive directly in front of the Capitol to be able to get out, speak, jump back in your car, and head back. They closed off the road for this one, but it wasn't for construction. It was to accommodate the people walking down the street. And so there is a difference there. Even though the action is the same, closing down the street, the difference in these two occasions is, in one, closing down the street specifically hindered the protest. In the other, the Love Matters rally that we're talking about this weekend, closing down the street was something that helped the protest. And so there is a little bit of a difference there, that even though they, it, it, they took much more strenuous efforts to try to shut down the initial protest than they did this one. So there is at least a sense of inconsistency there. The messaging was roughly the same, which is, well, we don't approve of it and you shouldn't do it. But the response to it was markedly different. The, the actual actions taken by the city of Montgomery, in one case, helping people out. In the other case, with the Get Back to Work Alabama, specifically trying to stymie the event from happening. But regardless... 
that aside for a second, uh, one thing that I will say about it is the, the crowd, when they all came together, the events that unfolded is they talked for about a minute and then they played a little bit of music and then they had a time of prayer, which I really appreciated. And one thing that was very different from some of the other things that we have observed and we've talked about on the program, because you, you may recall that with the, the washing of the people's feet or with the, the crowd of, of white people praying there and asking for forgiveness and, and bowing to the black people that were up front, that didn't happen. Everybody was on equal footing. Everybody was the same. There were some people that were sitting down on the Capitol steps. There were some people that were kneeling on the ground. Uh, but it wasn't like... Uh, okay, all the black people come up here and then all the white people stay down there and kneel. That didn't happen. It was all together. And uh, everybody got together. There was a, uh, I forget the exact time, but the amount of time that George Floyd had his neck kneeled upon that ended in his ultimate and untimely murder, uh, all of that that was the basis for the, the period in which they sat and did silent prayer. Now, they didn't do silent prayer in the, the sense that I thought they were going to do silent prayer. When I think of silent prayer, I think of it's quiet. They did it with uh, some kind of spiritual music playing in the background. Uh, but they had that, they had dancing, and then they marched down, sang some songs as they were marching, and went to the Fountain Plaza. And uh, that, to me... I mean, the, the whole event was, was well done. It wound up only lasting an hour, even though they were originally scheduled for four and then scaled it back to two. It, it really only lasted until about five. And then they started doing sort of the block party part of it where they had hot dogs for everybody, uh, water for everybody, and they were dancing. So overall, the message of the day was let's come together, let's pray, let's march together, and one of the things that I really appreciated about it, and, and I think that the people who organized it ought to be commended for, is the overall message was, okay, we want to fight, but let's fight in the right way. That's important because how you win matters. The method in which you use to get your goal matters. Now, I don't know if every single person there agreed with the same thing that I did when it came to goals. There were a lot of people, like I said, that were talking about systemic racism. I just don't see the evidence for that. The statistics do not bear out the idea that uh, uh, systematically police officers are going out and trying to murder black people or anything. And they didn't say that. I think that they were using it as kind of a buzzword. But nonetheless, that's a narrative that I disagree with. But even if I disagree with somebody, if they are willing to sit down, have a, have a conversation, a serious conversation, maybe even an uncomfortable conversation, but a conversation nonetheless, they're willing to hear both sides, and they're not out for blood or out to get anybody, that's a person I do not mind having a conversation with. That's somebody that I can sit down with, and even if the conversation or the content of what we're talking about is difficult or uncomfortable, I feel like we can work through. And even if we walk away from that disagreeing, that's a thing where you, you don't hurt the other person. You don't wish ill upon the other person just because they disagree with you. And see, that's the key. What made this event different than so many of the other events that may have even started out peaceful, but then after a little while devolved into violent riots, that kind of thing? Here's the difference. It started with prayer. Everybody came together. 
We're like, all right, let's pray for this. You see, when that's the origin, when that is the crux upon which a demonstration or something like that happens, I'm not saying that it makes it immune to something like that. But when you start out with the idea of prayer, you are reminded that A, you have a single creator that created you, and it also created everybody else. God created everybody with every skin color, and prayer reminds us of that. And the second half of that is, there is a ultimate creator that I will one day have to hold myself accountable for. And when you think about it that way, it's a lot harder to justify doing something evil to try to get to a good end. There's a reason that when you look at, for example, the 20th century, the worst totalitarian evil regimes that have existed in that time period, by and large, were atheist secularists. Because they viewed the ends as justifying the means. As long as we get to the end, the end is the ultimate goal, why does it matter what route I take to get there? But if you believe that there is a God that is looking over, watching out for everybody, his providence, there's an interplay in there, first of all, it makes you know that, okay, I'm going to have to be held accountable for the actions I take, so I can't just do whatever I want just because the ends justify the means. But the second half of that is, that comes with faith that if I just do the right thing, God's going to take care of all the other stuff. I don't have to cheat or to break the law in order to get what I want. If there is an injustice happening, then I can correct that, that injustice through correct means by asking for God's intervention. I mean, this is something that's true throughout the biblical narrative. You could look at, for example, the book of Esther is probably the best example that, uh, that you could look at is that Uh, an incredible, horrible injustice based on race was about to happen to the Jewish people. And without cheating, without, you know, attacking Haman or any of the people, without doing any of those things, God, through his providence, brought justice. And by the way, it's important to note that in that process, not only are you convinced that there is providence and that there is interworking between God and man, but that even if you don't get to the end that the means would justify, if you don't get to that goal, even if those people are not held to account in this life, they will be held to account in the next. You see, if you're somebody that doesn't believe in God or doesn't believe in an ultimate judgment, that does taint the way that you look at the world. Because you think, well, if, if I don't enact justice, if I don't take extreme measures to make sure justice is enacted on this planet, then it's never going to happen. That does make a significant difference. And I think the fact that this whole thing started with and was centered around a spiritual message about God, that was the difference. That's what made it to where it was something that people could come to and remember that they're supposed to do so in a particular fashion, they're supposed to demonstrate in a particular way, and that they're going to be held to account to an almighty creator one day if they do not. That makes a severe difference in the tone and the methodology of a movement. And it always has. That's the reason Dr. Martin Luther King succeeded where Malcolm X failed. There was a completely different basis upon which those movements were predicated, And you see that in the results. 
Another big local story that I wanted to talk about, which really is a travesty on a personal level to me, but also more broadly, the there is now a movement to defund the Confederate Memorial Park in, uh, for those of you who don't know where it is, it's near Marbury, it's technically in Chilton County, and the Confederate Memorial Park, for those of you that have never had the pleasure of visiting it, it has two Confederate cemeteries where there are there are other people, I'm sure, that weren't involved in the war buried there as well, but primarily it is Confederate soldiers. There are about 300 people buried in the two cemeteries there. They also have uh, some historically significant landmarks within it. For example, there's an old church that is from the Civil War area, uh, area, the Civil War era, and so you can actually go there and visit it and see what the church looked like. Uh, by the way, fantastic acoustics in that building. I mean, you can sing there and even somebody that's only a decent singer on his best day like me can actually sound pretty good in a congregation if you're singing because it's got those uh, those low wooden roofs. The acoustics are just fantastic in there. But anyway, uh, not to get off on that, there's several other big historic sites. They have maps where you can look at it. They have a, you know, basically the layout of a town and what it would have looked like in the Confederate era. So, uh, a lot of historic significance there. Then they also have a small museum where you can go and see a lot of different artifacts from the Confederate era. Uh, they have them from both sides. Now, obviously, it's heavier on the Confederate side because this is Alabama. This was a part of the Confederacy, ergo. They're going to have more artifacts that depict things from the Confederate side just because there's a larger abundance of them nearby. But anyway, so that's part of it. They also have several nature trails, uh, got a really big, um, let's see, they, they got a big pond out there. They got a really gigantic tree that you can go to on these trails. I've walked them dozens and dozens of times. And so lots of different things going on there. Some connected to the Confederate, uh, the Confederacy and its history in the state of Alabama. Some of it, you know, pretty much completely unconnected to it, like the walking trails. But regardless, there is now a call from the House Minority Leader, Anthony Daniels of Huntsville, to try to defund the entirety of the park. And he says here, and I quote, Absolutely, it's not appropriate. I'm not going to say where the dollars should go without evaluating the budget further, but I know that there are much better places than that these dollars could go than fund something that brings a lot of pain to black America, uh, back to Alabamians. And by the way, the NAACP made a statement, and I, I'm not sure which one came first. I'm not sure if they were adopting the minority leader's words in the NAACP statement or the reverse happened and the representative here was quoting the NAACP statement, and, and that's what sort of kick-started his movement to defund it. I'm not sure what the origin of this is, but either way, they made another statement that said something very similar, that this is causing all kinds of pain to black Americans, which... I found their statement really odd because it was talking about just the sight of a Confederate flag, uh, to which I had two pretty obvious rebuttals, which is, A, well, this is a Confederate park, not a place that, you know, it's, it's not just a Confederate flag. Like, it's, it's not as though the state is maintaining that giant rebel flag up there next to the interstate that's privately funded. I mean, you might have something of a case if that were what was going on, but this is an entire memorial park including all the things that I talked about with museums, cemeteries, church, that kind of thing. And the second really big part of this that is uh, somewhat, 
you know, baffling. How does it cause you pain if you don't go there? Like, if you are somebody, and I don't understand this personally, especially being a historian that has seen things like actual Nazi artifacts, but if you are a person that is triggered by the mere sight of a Confederate flag, or it's not actually the Confederate flag, it's more appropriately referred to as the rebel flag, but if you see the rebel flag and you as a person, uh, regardless of, of the reason or the rationale, are immediately put into pain just by the mere sight of it, which I find ridiculous on the surface, but even if that is the case, you would think you would have enough sense to avoid a place called the Confederate Memorial Park. I would imagine a very, very small percentage of Alabamians overall, regardless of their skin color, have actually been to the Confederate Park or know of its existence. Now, I do because I grew up right around it. But nonetheless, I, I kind of doubt that if you're somebody that knows ahead of time that the rebel flag is something that automatically causes you some kind of pain, ridiculous as that notion may be, that you would be dumb enough to visit a place called the Confederate Memorial Park. But nonetheless, let's look at the actual claim there. Who is it hurting? Seriously, can anybody point to who this person, uh, who this park existing and being given taxpayer dollars is hurting? Can you prove damages? Because if that's the case, why not just use the court system? If somehow you are being financially or physically damaged by this, then by all means, go to the courts, file a civil suit, try to sue the state, see if it works. Don't think it's going to, and I think the reason that no one has done that yet is specifically because they know it's not going to work and they can't prove damages. That's absolutely absurd. In the same stroke, now I'm not saying it's exactly the same, I'm not saying it's exactly a one-to-one -one comparison, I imagine that there are Jews that would be understandably in a lot of pain going to the Holocaust Museum in the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. I'm sure that would be very painful for, very, for a lot of them for very legitimate reasons. Should we defund it just because there are some citizens within the United States that would be in pain seeing that? That's not a good reason to defund it. Now, maybe you could make the case that if it were specifically something that we're trying to do that, or, but, but I mean, if you know that that's going to be something that upsets you, don't go to the Holocaust Museum. That doesn't mean that nobody else should be allowed to go to it or that nobody else should have access to that thing, which does teach us about history just because of this. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And furthermore, it makes no sense to single out this specific park for defunding it. Look, I'm a very libertarian-minded person. I, I wouldn't say that I'm full-on libertarian, but I have very libertarian leanings. If you wanted to make the case to me, for example, that we should defund all state parks and the state shouldn't be in the business of preserving it, and if the park wants to stay afloat and, and be there for people to use, that's fine. They should do it through private funding. I think that there actually is a vested interest in states doing this. I think that the federal government should not be doing it. I think we should not have national parks. But if the state, on an individual basis, wants to do that, I think they ought to be. However, I am sympathetic to that argument. I at least understand where you're coming from when you're saying, okay, we need to defund Chihuahua and Oak Mountain and all the other 
parks around the state. We need to defund all of those things because the state just doesn't need to be in the business of that park. But singling out one specific park because there are some people that may not like to go there really doesn't make any sense. I could round you up no shortage of people that don't like camping. That doesn't mean that we should shut down Chihuahua just because there are people that would not enjoy going there. That doesn't make any sense. And whether you like it or not, and, and Alan West made a fantastic point about this, history does not exist for it to be liked. It's not the purpose of history. In fact, normally, uh, a person that is at least somewhat fair-minded looks at mistakes that were made in the past, that looks at history and says, okay, we really need to preserve this because there needs to be some record of mistakes that have been made in the past so that we do not make the same mistakes in the future. So Colonel Allen West making that point very eloquently. But on that, the Confederate States of... Uh, the, I just lost the, uh, the official name there. Uh, the Confederate Park is there to remind us of a period in time in the Confederacy. Doesn't mean you have to agree with the decisions that were made. Doesn't mean you have to agree with the sentiments that were made. But that is a significant, important part of Alabama's history. I mean, for Pete's sake, the state seceded from the Union for a period of time. That's something that we need to know about. So if we defund the Confederate Park, we would have to defund the archives building there in the state with the, the museum that they have, which actually is a really cool museum. I, I definitely encourage people to go. We have to defund things like DeSoto Caverns. Uh, we have to defund different museums around the state that are funded by the government. If we're just going to defund museums and parks, we need to defund all of it because, I mean, there are displays in the Alabama museum there that have both things from the Confederacy, items from that, and also show things from slavery and, and the slave trade there in the United States. Heck, the uh, Equal Justice Initiative, which I know isn't state-funded, that's definitely a, a privately uh, funded uh, organization, I guess is the best way to say it. They're a privately funded organization that maintains that lynching memorial. There are definitely people that would be, rightfully so, upset at seeing that. That does not mean we should get rid of it. That doesn't mean that it should not exist. And when it comes to this, I remember, because I'm more than two years old, I remember when the argument was being made, well, we need to get rid of Confederate flags again more accurately described as the rebel flag, we need to get rid of those things. And they need to be put into a museum. We don't need to have them, for example, on public lands where anybody could just walk by and see them. What we need to do is, if it's a taxpayer uh, piece of land or property, it's okay for them to exist, but they need to be in a museum. This is them coming after the museum. Because that's exactly what is in the Confederate Memorial Park a museum about the Confederacy. They said, look, it, it belongs in a museum. Just relegate it to that. I think that is a legitimate argument. I, I think that there's, you know, decent points to be made on both sides of it. But if your argument is going to be, because that was what the left was saying, well, that thing, yeah, we want to preserve history, just put it into, mu into a museum. Well, this is a museum. This is a place specifically set aside for people to study history of a specific era in the state of Alabama. This is a place where you can do that, and they're saying, no, we want to get rid of that too. 
they're constantly moving the goalpost. We saw something very similar a couple weeks ago when rioters broke into a museum in Virginia and destroyed a bunch of Confederate uh, historically significant portions, their uh, parchments, uh, flags, all kinds of stuff. They destroyed a lot of history, even though they said, hey, let's put it into a museum. Well, people did put it into a museum, and a bunch of rioters got together and burned it. And so, I mean, that argument is dead. You can't make the case that you were making just a couple of years ago when this debate was, you know, all the rage again uh, back then that, well, we're okay with it. It just should be preserved for history and put it into a museum. That's its proper place. When you're trying to get rid of the museum too, this is about erasing history. This is about erasing things that we need to understand. There needs to be monuments to these things, if nothing else to remind us that we don't want to go to that place again. If nothing else, so that people know and are aware of what is going on and what happened in the past so we do not repeat those mistakes in the future. That's the reason these things do need to exist. And on a personal level, and I know that this is coming from me and this isn't something that's necessarily objective. But I spent an awful lot of time at that park as a kid. It was very close to my high school and very close to my church. We used it for all kinds of events. When I was in high school, because I was very active in the FFA and my dad was my ag teacher, he had a food plot down there at the Confederate Park and a, a plot of land that wasn't you know, being used. This just happens to be part of the, the park. We had a food plot down there for the local high school to grow vegetables and fruits for the community. And we did. People could come by. They could pick it anytime they wanted to. We had the people there in the FFA cultivate it, plow it. I cannot tell you the number of summers I spent at that place plowing and, and making sure that it was maintained because in the summer, of course, all the kids are out of school. So I was the only kid left that my dad had to use as free manual labor. Uh, but you know, that, that's something that happened. This is a part of that community. And what they are suggesting would rob people of that. Like I said, that there's hiking trails, nature trails all throughout the park. Every year for Easter, my church, which was only about mm, maybe five, six minutes away from this uh, park, they have pavilions there where people go and you can rent them out and reserve it for a day or two, we did that and we would have fellowship meals over there. We had that every year that I was at Midway that I can recall. Uh, we would have Easter egg hunts and then we would actually have evening service in their church building there in the park. And that's how I know about the acoustics being so good there. And by the way, we were not the only people that did that. People all over that community would reserve things for there. I had a birthday party there once. I went to other people's birthday parties there when they would reserve the pavilion. Uh, there were several other churches. You actually had to be on the list like a year in advance to make sure that at the, the Sunday that you wanted it, it when I say, it, we, you know, my church doesn't really celebrate Easter as being anything more than uh, just another Sunday. We celebrate every Sunday because it's the resurrection of the Lord. And so... We usually reserved it about two or three weeks ahead of time because there was less, you know, push to get it because a lot of people wanted it specifically on Easter Sunday. But we did that, and that was something that enhanced the community. And you know what else? When we went, there were black people with us. 
because my church is, is like the church is supposed to be, which is there are no color barriers that people come in and out as they choose. In fact, Midway now is actually a majority black church and I've gone and preached there before, but the congregation there, we, every time that I can remember had at least a few black members and they all went and enjoyed the fellowship at the Confederate Park just like everybody else. This is not a thing that is specifically reserved only for white Alabamians. This is something that is an important part of the community and an important part of Alabama's history. And some moron from Huntsville that's never been there and doesn't know what all it entails, if you're going to talk about defunding it, you should at least go down there and look at it first. You shouldn't assume that it is inappropriate just because it has the word Confederate in it. This is the problem that we've run into. There are people that are trying to erase anything that they think might potentially be offensive at some point to somebody. They're going out and slaying imaginary giants like Don Quixote, trying to virtue signal that they, look at me, I am the freedom fighter that is fighting for the minorities and the oppressed, you should vote for me. It's absurd. This guy is just trying to make political hay by destroying something that is an important part of Alabama's community there in Marbury. And it's absolutely disgusting. I, I'd invite the minority leader to come on my show anytime. He has a standing invitation to debate this issue with me. Bring it on. I have no scruples about doing that whatsoever. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a quick break here, and then we'll be back with the second on tactics because big news coming up. We're going to talk about the SCOTUS decision that came down today. That's coming up in just a second. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Sorry about that. Very unprofessional. I was trying to find my notes and I could not do it. Uh, there we go. Wow. Just falling apart over here. But anyway, so this is the latest from the Supreme Court decision that came down earlier today. Uh, there was a three to six decision. And uh, it was on the discrimination, basically, whether or not uh, when you're looking at the firing of somebody, whether or not you could terminate a person uh, being for being transgender. And without getting too far into the weeds of the case, essentially what the overarching message of all of this is, is that if you are a person that is transgender, because this all started with a case in Michigan. And so the person wanted to uh, come in and become a, a woman, apparently. It was a dude, and he wanted to wear dresses to... And, and by the way, this was not something that the owner was privy to when this person was hired. They were already an employee, and then they asked permission. They're like, hey, can I just uh, start wearing a, a dress, and you start calling me by a different name? And the guy was like... Yeah, no, that's not going to work, especially when we're talking to a bunch of grieving families. Uh, that's not going to be something that I'd really like for my customers to have to deal with. And the overall idea from a legal perspective is that you can't fire somebody for being trans because that would be firing them based on their sex. Because when a person claims to be a woman, it's he actually is a woman. And so that was the thinking behind the initial argument. And, and the decision actually goes a little bit in a different direction. And we'll talk about that in a second. But what it wound up happening is it was a six to three decision. And as soon as I saw it was a six to three decision, I was like, ah, Roberts and Kavanaugh, Roberts and Kavanaugh are the ones that sided with the libs. 
because Roberts and Kavanaugh have been fighting with one another to be the new Justice Kennedy. And, uh, turns out, no, Kavanaugh actually sided with Thomas and Alito, which was very surprising because that means, by process of elimination, the only justice left was the one who actually wound up writing the prevailing opinion, Neil Gorsuch. Which was, uh, pretty surprising on a number of levels, especially from somebody who has always claimed the mantle of, and I mean, based on several of the opinions that he has written thus far, has been somebody that is, at least seems to be an originalist. It was very, very surprising that Gorsuch came down on this. And I got to say, without getting, before we get into the actual content of the case itself, I think that the biggest loser here, because for the vast majority of Americans, this isn't going to affect them that much, at least not from what we see so far. It may wind up having really horrible ramifications on down the pipe. But the biggest loser, at least in the immediate, in the short term, is President Trump. Because President Trump, his case that he could make to anybody that is somewhat conservatively minded that didn't like Trump because he's too much of a moderate or had a problem with him personally because of his personal defects, the the backdrop excuse for anybody trying to convince that person that, hey, you need to vote for President Trump even if you don't like him all that much, was but Neil Gorsuch. They could kind of hang their hat on Kavanaugh, but not really to the extent that they could with Gorsuch. It's like, well, look at Gorsuch. That's why you need President Trump to nominate somebody, people like Neil Gorsuch. This, not too long before Election Day, that puts a pretty big spike into that argument. I mean, there is a massive hole gaping in the middle of that argument now that Neil Gorsuch has come out with this particular decision. And the thing is, justices, the thing is, justices are occasionally going to rules in, in ways that you didn't expect, that you may not have necessarily wanted. But ultimately, when it comes right down to it, when it's something that's this big and potentially this consequential, and it's this close to an election year, if, if there is anybody that is sweating bullets right now because of this, it's got to be President Trump. This severely hinders his argument to the people that are kind of iffy about him and voting for him in the first place. I don't know that it'll have a, a huge ramification, but that is an argument that I think more or less died today, or at the very least is on life support. But the most important question here, in my opinion, is the one that very, very few people are talking about in the wake of this. And that is, there is a freedom of association issue, as well as an economic freedom issue. This is the big problem that I'm seeing. Because when you're talking about freedom of association, this actually goes deeper than this particular question or this particular case was willing to delve into. And I understand why from a legal perspective. But the thing is, not only do I think that you should be able to fire a trans person because they are trans... I think that any employer, anywhere, should be able to fire anyone for any reason. If I walk in one day and I'm wearing a, a baseball cap, I'm wearing a, a Boston Red Sox hat, and my boss says, uh, yeah, I didn't know you were a Red Sox fan. I'm a Yankees fan, so you're out. Okay, well, that's a silly reason to fire somebody, but that's his right. It's his business. It's his company. He owns it. Why should the government have any say-so whatsoever 
in him doing that. There is a freedom of association issue here. Because if we're to assume that the average person, the average citizen, has the freedom to associate with and by extension work with and do business with anybody who he sees fit, why would we have a law that says that you can't do that in the context of a business? If we're going to have freedom of association, we need to have freedom of association for businesses just like we do in, uh, regular citizens that are just out you know, doing their own thing as a normal citizen. In the same way, and then this comes to the economic freedom standpoint of it, if the government can compel you who you have to hire and who you have to allow work for you, why would we assume that the government couldn't tell you that you have to hire, for example, somebody to mow your lawn? Maybe you don't want your lawn mowed. Maybe you want to mow your lawn yourself. Maybe you want to handle that. Why would it be incorrect to say, well, I'm sorry, there's a gay guy here that runs a lawn mowing service, so you have to hire him. How is that any different? How is there any difference there? Whether you're the client or whether you're, you, you know, getting a service done or whether you are the employer employing an employee, if we have a freedom of association, we have to be able to freely do that. And, and by the way, I know that this is an unpopular opinion. I know that I'm going to have a whole bunch of people throwing stuff at their computer screens when I say this, but I think that goes for race and sex as well. If somebody in the wake of all this just decided that all white people were evil and they wanted to fire me because I was white, I don't like it. I think it's unfair. I think that it's wrong, but I still think they have the freedom to do so. That is a prerogative that they have. And the free market, I think, will correct that because when people hear about that, when people know about that, they're less likely to frequent a person's business in that regard. But even if it didn't, they still have the freedom of association. And then there comes the economic liberty standpoint of it. The freedom to be able to economically make your own decisions. If you want to fire somebody for no reason at all, that's your prerogative because the business is yours. You own it. So in the same way that a person could not, uh, the government ought not mandate that you give access, for example, to your car or to your house to somebody, they also should not have access to employment to a business that you created. So there is an economic liberty standpoint here. And by the way, liberty is a two-way street. Liberty is always a two-way street. If the employee has the freedom, and he does and should, if the employee has the freedom to just quit for whatever reason, just quit because he's tired of doing it, quit because he doesn't like his boss, quit because, I don't know, he it's Tuesday. If an employee has the prerogative to quit his job, the employer must also have the prerogative to end that person's employment for any reason that he wants. This is a freedom of association and an economic freedom thing, but it goes both ways. The employee should have freedom of association. The employer should have freedom of association. The employee should have economic freedom to make his own decisions when it comes to his employment and the employer should have the same rights. I don't understand why this is hard, and I also don't understand why nobody is talking about this. This is not even addressed in the Supreme Court decision, which is a crying shame, because that's the larger question that everybody is ignoring. But that aside, let's go ahead and look at the part that everybody is talking about real quickly. So... This is a less important issue, of course. It's, it's you know, micromanaging a little bit. 
but it's equally relevant, which is what happened today is the same thing that happened in the Obamacare hearing, where essentially the court decided to legislate from the bench to change and update the wording of a law to more accurately fit it. Now, to be fair, it's not as though that the Civil Rights Act was somehow in question when it came to its legality and what they did was adjust it to save it like they did in Obamacare. But what they did do is update the meaning of a word in an existing law that has been understood to mean one thing in the decade since it's been passed and update that language to include something completely different. The idea that the people who voted on both for and against, but especially the ones that voted for and wrote the Civil Rights Act of 1965, and heck, even Lyndon Baines Johnson, who signed it into law, the idea that when they were looking at the clause on the basis of sex and took that to mean, oh, and also anybody that's transgender and any guy that sleeps with men, because this was basically the argument that was articulated by Gorsuch. What Gorsuch was actually saying here is, well, see, if a man were fired for sleeping with a man, well, then that would be something that would be wrong because if a woman did exactly the same thing and were not fired, then that would be discrimination on the basis of sex. Well, no, you can discriminate between those actions. All you would have to do as a company is write a policy that said, okay, none of our, when it comes to our employees, women cannot sleep with women, men cannot sleep with men. And then you solve the discrimination factor there, then you're prosecuting or, in this case, terminating somebody for a completely different reason. And so that's a very easy legal fix. And I don't understand why they went to the fact that, oh, any kind of discrimination based on homosexuality would necessarily be a basis on, or would necessarily be a termination on the basis of sex. No, that's not even close to true. You could very easily work around that. And the law could very easily work around that, but they failed to recognize that even though it's a very simple way to handle this. So essentially what Gorsuch is trying to say here is, we're trying to expand the meaning of the word sex to include sex, the act, sex intercourse, as opposed to the action of sex, sex meaning whether you're a man or a woman. The problem with that, though, is in 1965, homosexuality already existed. Homosexuality is one of the oldest sins in man's lexicon. I mean, homosexuality has been around since at least ancient Greece, probably long predating even that. And when the Supreme, or sorry, when the Congress that wrote and passed the Civil Rights Act of 1965 were voting on this, when they saw on the basis of sex, they all knew and understood that what that was talking about is, okay, whether you're a man or a woman, you can't discriminate based on that. Now, again, as I've already stated, I think that's actually incorrect. I think that an employee, uh, an employer ought to have that right to do so. Stupid as it may be, he should have the right to choose that. However, and this is the real kicker, nobody, nobody that was voting on that, nor was the public when reading that, would have understood the word sex to mean anything other than your biologically assigned gender. And when I say assigned, I don't mean assigned by the doctor, I mean assigned to you by biology. The fact that you have an X chromosome or a Y, or sorry, two X chromosomes or a Y chromosome is a wholly scientific biological standard. 
and everybody that was reading the law understood that at the time. What Gorsuch tried to do is expand that to mean sexual intercourse. In other words, your choices in sex are now protected. But that's not what they understood at the time. And here's the reason that that's so ridiculous. There's a couple of examples I could give here. Your choices of who you want to sleep with should be, if you want to, be grounds for termination. Let's say, for example, that there is a woman who is the owner of a company, and it turns out that one of her employees is sleeping with her husband, having an affair behind their back. She discovers this, and uh, now, based on this interpretation, she can't fire that person because she's sleeping with her husband because she would be firing somebody on the basis of sex. Again, redefining what they understood the term to mean originally to be sex as in intercourse. Well, that is a woman's sexual preference. That is the woman in question's sexual preference to sleep with this woman's husband, wrong as it may be. So are we to now assume that that person wouldn't be able to fire somebody because of their sexual choices? Here's another one, and this one's far more terrifying. Let's say that there is somebody that is sexually attracted to children. They are a pedophile, but they haven't committed any crimes. In other words, they haven't sexually assaulted a child before. Uh, They don't have child porn or anything like that. But let's say that this is a person that is just sexually attracted to children. Could a daycare not fire that person? That would be a sexual preference that they have. So you see the kind of can of worms and the unintended consequences that springs forth from this thing? This is why you don't make these kinds of decisions, because they have all kinds of unintended consequences. This is why leaving it up to the individual, maximizing the amount of liberty that is available here is smart. If Gorsuch were to do exactly the same thing, for example, with militia, in other words, redefine the word to mean what we in our in our modern vernacular, tend to use it as. And I'm not saying that people in 1965 didn't mean sex to talk about intercourse as well, but also that they had the option of including homosexuals as a protected class when going into detail, and they specifically chose not to. That's the difference here. Everybody that was understanding that law that would have voted on it, the public, when they read the law, would have understood it to mean at the time specifically whether a person was a man or a woman. It did not mean any kind of, uh, you you can take any pick of your sexual preference, and that cannot be used as a basis to terminate somebody. That's not a thing that they intended for it to be. And for Gorsuch to suggest otherwise is a slap in the face to originalism. If we were to do exactly the same thing with the word militia, even though I think you would still actually have a pretty big hurdle to jump over because there is a comma there in the Second Amendment. But even if that comma were not there, even though that comma is there, let's pretend that it wasn't for a second. If the comma didn't exist, and you were to redefine the word militia as being the National Guard, for example, because when a lot of people hear the word militia, they think the National Guard. In fact, a lot of people on the left have tried to make the case that that is what it means. Just like a lot of people on the left have tried to make the case that Gender means whatever you want it to mean, and it's just whatever you feel. So people have tried to make that case before. We have to go back and understand the law as it was understood by the people at the time. Otherwise, there is no reason to record a law in the first place. 
if the word and the law that was intended is not there and set in stone, then why make laws anyway? Why don't we just update laws without a legislative process, which is what happened from the bench today in the Supreme Court. That's what they just did. They updated the meaning of the word in the law. And if we were to do that with the Second Amendment, we could say, see, only National Guard members are allowed to have firearms. You see how dangerous that is? That we just selectively update language to fit more accurately what we perceive the words to mean today? We have to understand them in which the founders or, you know, in cases of later laws, whomever was writing the law at the time understood them. Otherwise, there's no point in having recorded laws. We can just make it up as we go along, which is what happened today. When it comes to something like this, I do think, though, I do think that what Gorsuch was trying to do, and he does, you can read it in his opinion, what he's trying to do, he's, he's trying to pay homage to textualism, which I understand, because textualism should trump originalism whenever given the opportunity. What I mean by that is that when you have the option of going with the raw text of the law and then the intention of the lawmaker, well, as long as that raw text is not vague and it couldn't mean two or three different things, you always go with the text. You always go with the raw text if that is indeed an option. If it is not an option, you have to bring in originalism. Because what originalism does is it sets that text in the proper context. See, what that allows for you to do is to say, okay, well, how would they have understood the text to be meant at that time? Again, if you have the option of textualism, if it's a word that is not in any way vague, you know exactly what they meant just by reading it, okay, always go with textualism. I understand that. That is a legal philosophy I support. And I thought Gorsuch did up until today. But when it comes to originalism, that's what you bring in when sure textualism doesn't get you to where you need to go. It doesn't get you to the original intention of the person writing the law. That helps you understand what was actually intended by the lawmaker at the time. Look, if there are laws that are genuinely outdated, they genuinely do need to be revised, we have a legislative branch for that. And by the way, a lot of people today are sort of acting as though when people like me call for, hey, let the legislative branch handle that, they're saying, oh, well, you know, you can't do that. Well, let's have the court update it. Except, in fact, Gorsuch actually tries to make this point in his opinion where he essentially says that uh, when it comes to legislation, that we're, uh, we don't want to insert ourselves into the legislative process, but that's exactly what happened here because the legislative process, the legislators in Congress have actually been trying to adjust the language of the Civil Rights Act for Title VII to include sexual identity or orientation. It has failed every single time they have tried to do so. Why? Because it's a controversial issue. It's an issue that people already know and understand is going to be very hard to pass. Even a lot of Democrats don't want to touch it because they understand the ramifications that would come with that. And so Gorsuch is basically kind of acting as though, oh, well, Congress never even thought to do this, and, and we're just acting on 
Congress, I don't, I don't want to pin it all on Gorsuch because he did have five other justices joining him in this opinion. So it's Roberts and Ginsburg and Breyers and all the others as well. But ultimately what's going on here is they're trying to say, no, no, we don't want to be involved in legislation, but we're going to update the language here. Well, Congress has the option of updating the language. If you already acknowledge that Congress in 1965 would not have meant it to be this, and you acknowledge that the legislator has already tried to bring this forward and failed, I think it's pretty clear that that's a political question. And whenever they can avoid it, the Supreme Court should avoid most political questions. That's the way that normally it should happen unless it comes into the realm of unconstitutionality. And so I, the court really dropped the ball on this one in a number of ways. I will say this, though, and this is kind of the silver lining in all of this, uh, even though overall it's a, it's a really bad opinion. The irony is, technically, what this law does and the way that it's written it protects transgenders upon the basis of their sex. That's the interesting part. So, for example, what it's saying when it says, well, you can't discriminate against a man for walking in with a dress, you, can, uh, you can't discriminate against a man for doing that because you wouldn't do the same thing if it were a woman. It is basically acknowledging that there is a difference between men and women, which, of course, is common sense. We all know that. But the left doesn't. And what's funny is it uses the word sex that typically what the left tries to do with that word is to say, hey, that is the one that means your biological uh, status, I guess is the best way to say it. When we're talking about biological sex, we're talking about what you were born as. And when we're talking about gender, and they're using the word incorrectly there because they're basically synonyms. But when we're using the word gender, that means whatever you feel like which is absurd on a number of levels. But even if it were not, the funny thing about that is, basically the Supreme Court is going to protect transgenders now and do so based upon an idea that is foreign to them, that men and women are real things. Because if there were no such thing as sex, then the law would be null and void. If you're not really a man and not really a woman, and these are all just ethereal social uh, constructs in our head, well, then this ruling makes absolutely no sense. And so there is a layer of contradiction there that is somewhat amusing that even though definitely came down with the wrong conclusion, it is pretty darn funny that for this to be used as a defense for people in saying, well, you can't fire somebody because they're transgender, they basically, to use this as a defense, have to acknowledge that the person is not the sex that they actually are. So I just find that quite amusing. But there would likely be an exception for religious organizations. So if you're a religious organization, there is reason to believe that this wouldn't necessarily apply. And here's why. There are certain churches and, and certain religious organizations, by the way, like my own church, that believes that there are certain jobs that should be gender-specific. For example, in my congregation, we believe that when you're talking about specifically pulpit ministers or elders or deacons, so on and so forth, that's, those are roles that are male-specific, that you can only fulfill them if you are a man in the church. Well, to avoid all kinds of religious freedom issues, courts have ruled in the past that even with the 1965 uh, reading of that, which means on the basis of sex would include, okay, whether you're a man or a woman, 
that churches and religious uh, organizations are exempt from that because the role is specific to a, a person, and that's part of a person's religious belief. Ergo, granted, this is all up in the air right now. This opinion just came down today. I'm sure we're going to see a case that winds up answering this question probably in the next couple of years. But when it comes to religious organizations, there's good reason to believe and good legal precedent to believe that there's probably going to be an exemption if you're a church. So in other words, the government using this will not probably be able to compel you to hire a gay minister, for example. Just like they can't compel a church to hire a, a female minister if that's something that they don't believe in. However, what is completely unclear and completely untouched by this opinion, which, again, is, is part of this can of worms that they've opened that they have not really considered all the consequences of, one really big issue that sort of comes from all of this is what about organizations or companies that are just Christian? Like whether or not it would be the right thing, I'm not making the, the moral argument, I'm taking specifically the, the overall argument, the legal argument. If a company is owned by devout Christians, like let's take Hobby Lobby, for example. If a company is owned by devout Christians, would that organization be exempt as well? because they have a, a deeply held religious conviction that would not allow them in, in their mind to hire a gay person? Well, based on this, it seems like no, but they don't really go into detail on that. Religious organizations like churches probably going to be exempt because of legal precedent. There's really no guidance whatsoever given in this opinion on a secular organization that also happens to have very strongly held religious or moral convictions on this. Another one. Now, this is an organization that is a religious organization in a sense. What about Faulkner? Faulkner is a, a organization that is, well, overseen is not really the right word, but it is one that is associated with a specific church, and that church does have specific beliefs. Would we then be compelled to hire on a person that is gay, or if somebody turned out one of our employees were gay, would we then be in, uh, unable to terminate them because of that? Based on this, probably so. There would be actually, according to this, we would be in violation of federal law in order to do so. So what this does do is it, I hope, will be a wake-up call I know I'm being overly optimistic here because I know that this is not going to happen. But I would hope that this would be a wake-up call for people that refer to themselves as Republicans and conservatives to this idea that, oh, really all your senators need to do, all the people in the Senate that you send up there every year, or, you know, the House to a lesser extent, but specifically the Senate because they handle confirmation. Really, as long as you get your court appointments in, you don't really have to worry about them not actually being all that conservative when it comes to legislation. Uh, according to this, yes, you do. You cannot count on the court to be the only backstop on this. All three branches, the president included, are supposed to be people that consider very carefully whether or not something is constitutional or not. That's not the court's job. I mean, it is the court's job, but it's not, it's, it's, it's not the only branch that is charged with that. We're not supposed to just throw everything up against the wall that sticks when it comes to legislation, even though that's not even really what happened here. They were very specific, and the court broadened the definition to change it into something that they never intended for it to be, which is a problem on a number of levels. But 
ultimately, it is the job of the Congress, the president, and the Supreme Court to handle stuff like this. And unfortunately, I don't see that with the House that this would be something that the legislature, the legislature could overturn. I don't think that you could get enough House members together to clarify that this specifically means sex, in other words, a man and a woman. And so, gang, you got to do something about this. Just sitting back and saying, well, as long as I send my person with an R behind their name to Congress, they're going to appoint the right justices to the Supreme Court, and that's going to be where we stand our ground. That's not going to cut it. And this decision proves it. A 6-3 to three decision, two of the people joining the prevailing opinion appointed by Republicans. The Republican Party has proven itself once again to be completely inept when it comes to choosing Supreme Court justices. And I like Gorsuch. I was a fan of him. Not so much right now. I'm sure that there's going to be things that he writes in the future that I'm applauding him on. But you need somebody that is a true originalist. And Gorsuch tries to pay homage to originalism in this thing, but ultimately falls way short of it. And basically goes against originalism in order to get a desired result to sort of reverse engineer a result that was desired by the court and figure out a way to get there. Horrible, horrible opinion by the court. Let's go to the Daily Dose of Stupid. That was stupid. I know it was stupid. Really stupid. Hey, I just said it was stupid. <laughs> and for today's Daily Dose of Stupid, this is... Uh, I, I just cannot stop smiling at this one. This has been by far the most amusing story that happened over the entirety of the weekend. So for those of you who are unaware, I'll give you a quick update. The Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, otherwise known as CHAZ, in Seattle's uh, downtown area, what they've done is they have actually walled off a section of the city. Walled off a section of the city. And uh, now they are claiming that they are a different country. There was a sign up the other day saying, you are now leaving the United States and entering Chaz. So they've declared themselves apparently an independent nation. And the protesters and Antifa rioters and so on and so forth have created this zone, which ironically has gigantic walls and very tight border security. <laughs> they basically went full Trump, and it has been so amusing to watch this. Uh, they have very strict border enforcement. There's only one way in or out of the Chaz. And to do so, you have to have documentation, which I thought was racist. I thought it was racist to require somebody to provide identification. And... It's really funny because they have basically shut down free speech and they say, oh, we're all about free speech. And then you have journalists being attacked inside the Chaz. Uh, there have also been all kinds of issues of violence, uh, police brutality, ironically, because they have a, a quasi police force run by a guy named Raz, who's a rapper. Yeah, that, that's the guy who you want for your chief of police. Some people are calling him a police chief. Some people are calling him a warlord. So there's just, incredible hilarity coming on all over the place. Now, of course, it's not funny that people are getting hurt or that journalists are being attacked or any of that stuff. But what is really freaking hilarious is how hard they're trying to create a society out of the six blocks inside Seattle. So let's go ahead and look at this. This was a tweet from one of the people inside the autonomous zone. And there you can see, okay, so... <laughs> 
the homeless people we invited took away all the food in the Capitol Hill autonomous uh, And it gets even better. We need more food to keep people, uh, to keep the area operational. Please, if possible, bring vegan meat substitutes. Fruits, oats, soy products, etc. Anything to help us eat. Man. The Babylon Bee can't write comedy that good. I, that is so far beyond parody. You, you can't come up with anything that's funnier than that. Granted, Babylon Bee tried, and they, they, valiant effort coming up with the Chad Zone, which was right next to it. Good job, Babylon Bee. You did your best. It's not your fault. This is too... Real life is, is too funny. Truth is stranger than fiction. The fact that they ran out of food because they were too generous. In other words, you know, the, these people have been yelling at people uh, since the beginning of time that, you know, they're being cruel to the homeless and the homeless are only that way because uh, society keeps them down. And then they invite homeless people in to stay with them. And they steal their food. What did you think was going to happen? And it's so funny. They're, they're referred to as the autonomous zone, which, of course, autonomy would suggest that they are self-sufficient, right? Except they're having to beg for food. In fact, they've actually put giant signs out listing all the things that they need to keep running and saying, please help us eat, bring in food from outside. You know, normally, when there's a banana republic or some kind of communist takeover, it takes at least like eight to ten years for there to be starving people and having to get help from outside in order to feed themselves. These knuckleheads accomplished it in a week. That's got to be a brand new record on communism starving people out. I, I, don't, I don't know how they did it, but in the matter of just seven days, they have already turned into Venezuela. At least it took Venezuela like a decade to get there. Uh, let's uh, this is my favorite part. This tweet from Matt Walsh with this picture. This is from inside the autonomous zone as well. Oh, that's not right. That's some charts. There we go. So Matt Walsh, the Antifa people in the autonomous zone are taking up farming. They poured some topsoil onto the grass. <laughs> Seems to have simply placed some plants onto the soil rather than digging holes, expecting to keep the plot sufficiently watered with a watering can. It's too good. I can't take it. <laughs> now, granted, I'm an ag major. These guys really are the kids that run away from home. And when they run away from home, they run to the treehouse in their parents' backyard with a cooler full of sandwiches that were made by things that their parents bought for them. That's who these people are. That's the only way I know to describe it. They're angry, and they want to show that they're self-sufficient, and then they try to do farming to be autonomous, and uh, they just basically pour some miracle crow on top of some grass, and then kind of wedge and stick plants down in there. Which, if you look at the size of that plot, that might keep four people fed for a day, you know, a couple of months into the future when the plants actually start flowering and bearing fruit. Uh, I really think the best lesson 
that they could learn here. And I think that this is something they should actually do. I think that we should have the State Department draw something up, let them be an autonomous nation with one stipulation. Say, you know what? That little section of Seattle, that's no longer part of the United States jurisdiction. It's it's a little country within a city like the Vatican or something like that. You're going to be your own autonomous nation, but uh, no welfare from us. You're not getting any of our supplies. And the stipulation, the one condition that we will add, is you have to allow us to monitor it. In other words, just let us have some cameras within the zone. Let us have access to those. Because that would keep people entertained for months. Not a lot of movies going on right now. A lot of people are having to stay home. At least give us the reality show of what happens within the Chaz. That would keep me entertained. Just these couple of days, in my opinion, this has got to be the funniest story of the year. So let's go ahead and at least get some entertainment out of all this madness. And one other thing that I wanted to bring up on all this, they actually have issued a list of demands, which is... This one's less funny, but it certainly is indicative of who they really are. So this is people within the Chaz, and and according to them, the collective black voices that are making these demands. Issue number one, the Seattle Police Department and attached court system are beyond reform. We do not request reform. We demand abolition. We demand the Seattle Council and the mayor uh, defund and abolish the Seattle Police Department, and the attached criminal justice apparatus. This is uh, this means 100% of funding, including existing pensions for the Seattle Police, and an equal level of priority. We also demand that the city disallow the operations of ICE, you know, inter, uh, the Customs Enforcement Agency, the ones that handle things like deporting people, in the city of Seattle. Issue number two. In the transitary period between now and the dismantlement of the Seattle Police Department, we demand that the use of armed force be banned entirely. No guns, no batons, no riot shields, no chemical weapons, especially those against exercising their First Amendment rights as Americans to protest. So when CNN and people on the left try to explain to you, okay, well, defund the police doesn't mean like actually get rid of all the police. It just means... Uh, some reform or maybe cut funding and spend things in other places. Yeah, that's not what they're talking about. That's absolutely not what they're talking about. You can see it in the list of demands that they wrote. They mean in their own words, 100% of funding that they are beyond reform. And we want the abolishment of the Seattle police department, including existing pensions. So even somebody that was a police officer 20 years ago, that hasn't even been in the force. That guy, he's got to go too. No funding for that whatsoever. I mean, these people are living in crazy town, and now they're literally living in crazy town. Uh, but anyway, they go on to say, number three, we demand to end school-to-prison pipeline and the abolition of youth jails, get kids out of prison, get cops out of schools. We also demand the new youth prison be built in Seattle, currently be repurposed. And then a little bit later in number eight, which actually ironically somewhat contradicts the one that they just made, we demand decriminalization of acts of protest, amnesty for protesters generally, but specifically those involved in what has been termed the George Floyd Rebellion against terrorist cell that previously occupied this area known as the, Pilato- the Seattle Police Department. So now the police are terrorists, according to them. 
This includes the immediate release of all protesters currently being held in prison. So no more prisons. So when you call these people anarchists and people on the left go, no, they're not anarchists. They're just trying to demonstrate. They want their voices to be heard. Uh, No, they're calling for full-on anarchy. No police, no imprisonments. Everybody just kind of walks around, and if they commit a crime, there's not really any repercussions for it. Then they go on to say further down, we demand the city of Seattle and the state government release any prisoner currently serving time for marijuana-related offense and expunge the related conviction. So in other words, if uh, you killed a guy and took his marijuana stash and the police caught you later with possession for marijuana and tried you and convicted you for possession and murder, well then, not only should you be let out of prison, but you should also have the charge of murder that you were convicted for expunged as well. That's what this is saying. So the idea that, oh no, we're only talking about nonviolent criminals, uh, not according to this. And then, finally, there's a lot more to this, but I'll just read the, the last point that we're going to look at. The demand of the abolition of imprisonment, generally speaking, but especially the abolition of both youth prisons and privately owned for-profit prisons. So basically no imprisonment whatsoever. Just anybody that breaks the law, just turn them right back out into the population. I mean, these people are psychopaths. And they want you to believe that they're just a bunch of uh, peaceful moderates. I'm sorry, there's just no truth to that. But I really do think that what this ultimately leads to, and, and the ultimate message here, is that you cannot allow anarchy to take place. Because this is a good view into what happens when a bunch of people running the show do not believe in law and order. When they do not believe in punishing the guilty, even if they are convicted, even if they do wrong things, you get anarchy. You get people just roaming the streets that do bad things with no repercussions and then get to continue to do bad things, continue to harm other individuals. This comes alongside with different reports of things like assault, rape, I mean, it's kind of hard to have a Me Too movement and be a feminist when you believe that people should be able to rape and because they've abolished all the prisons that that person just gets to go free afterward. I mean, maybe there's a different legal penalty, but it certainly isn't imprisonment. And so if he rapes one woman one night and then he gets to go free and then can walk out and rape another woman the next night, just keep stacking up those charges. This is the kind of imbecilic nonsense that children live in. A child believes that you can just turn everybody out, leave them to their own devices, no law enforcement whatsoever. Keep in mind, I'm a libertarian. I think that pretty much everything that can be allowed without hurting another individual should be. But that comes with the stipulation that once you infringe upon another person's rights, there has to be consequences for that. These people don't. That's an anarchist. That's a person that doesn't believe in laws. And that's where they are. They are going to reap what they sow. They're not very good at sowing. We saw that from Matt Walsh's tweet. But whatever they they sow, they are going to eventually reap. This is the kind of society that the left wants to live in. They don't realize that there are all these unintended consequences, but they want to, 
you know, get rid of prisons. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, an actually duly elected member of Congress, advocated for the abolishment of prisons. These are the same people. The only difference is these people actually went out and do it, did it. The other Democrats are trying to work within the system to bring this about. But if you implemented this nationwide, it's going to be the same thing. Gang, we are seeing here a microcosm of what the left's agenda will bring us. Don't let people forget it. We're getting a rare window into basically an experiment of what would happen if we let all of the left's policies become reality. This is it. You're seeing it play out in real time. It should be a pretty stern warning for us. Let's go to the chaplain's report. Tactics is a production of News Radio 1440. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for the Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on Tactics. Chaplain's Report today, we're going to be continuing our series in the book of 1 Samuel. And what's going on here is that Saul is about to ride into battle. He's about to lead Israel's troops into battle against the Philistines. They've already had some success. His son Jonathan has actually already been a big part of that. They have had some success against the Philistines. And so they're making ready to to make a big push and to drive the Philistines out of their land. And what is planned to happen here is that Samuel has told them in seven days, I will come there and I will make an offering before the battle. And then you can all ride into battle. And, and that will essentially be the offering that we give to God and praying for, for victory and safety and all that other stuff that you would expect that comes with going in to a battle. So Samuel has already made this promise to Saul. Seven days comes, Samuel's nowhere to be found. And so because Samuel is late, we see that Saul actually goes ahead and makes the offering himself. He goes ahead and, and makes the offering without Samuel there present, even though he said, wait for me, I will be there, and when I am there, I will be the one that offers the sacrifice. Saul, who is not supposed to be the one that is offering the sacrifice, goes ahead and does it anyway. And that brings us to where we are in this particular story. I got to tell you, my system is just going nuts over here. I don't know what the problem is, but we've had technical issues left and right. All right, so I'm just going to go ahead and read this one. But Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, because I saw the people were scattering from me or scattering from me, and you did not come within the appointed days and the Philistines were assembling at Michemash. I have I not ask for the favor of, man, it's completely out of, out of sequence here. I'm sorry. This thing's a whole system shut down here. All right, here we go. Therefore, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not asked for favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God which he commanded you. 
For now the Lord would have established your kingdom forever over Israel. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him ruler over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Now, this is the moment. This is the moment that God says to Saul, you're done. You're done. You're not going to be the king forever. I'm not going to establish the kingdom in your name. Your family is not going to be the one that sits upon the throne of Israel from here on out. I've got a replacement lined up. You will be replaced as the Lord's anointed king. Why now? Why is this the sticking point? Why is it that at this moment, God is the chosen now to inform Saul, yeah, you know what, I would have established the kingdom in your lineage forever if you had just done what I told you to do, but since it's obvious that is not what is going to happen, I've found somebody else. I'm going to have somebody else take your place. Now, to the average person looking on, they might read this and go, doesn't that seem a bit harsh? Why is it this moment specifically that God chooses like, nope, that's a bridge too far, I'm done, you are no longer going to be my anointed, my spirit is going to depart from you, so on and so forth. Well, I think there's actually several really good reasons that God made this decision. First of all, the most obvious one is disobedience. Saul knew that he was not the one that was supposed to do this offering, and Saul knew that that's something that is reserved for the priests, the Levites, and the prophets. That's not something that the king is supposed to be engaging in. And so not only was the command to hold off and wait, and I'll be there, even though he was a little bit late, not only was that being disobedient, but he was also being disobedient to the idea of his role in the kingdom. Just because you are king does not mean that you get to do everything. Just because you are the king doesn't mean you are the end-all, be-all. And this was a big statement to Israel that, look, not even your king is above obeying my laws. When he does wrong, I will punish even him. I'm ultimately the one that commands you. I'm ultimately your judge, not the king. The second part of this is, do you notice that the reason that Saul gives is not really one that a spiritual leader should be giving? He said, well, the people were essentially telling me that we need to go ahead and do this, and the people were scattering from me, and, and everybody was leaving, and morale was going down. I was like, okay, I'll do it. Okay, I'll be the one that offers sacrifice. Let's go ahead and, and let's go. So Saul bent to public opinion. He did something that he knew was wrong because people were urging him to do it. That's not a leader. That's not a king. Not a good one anyway. Certainly not one that is obeying God. One that looks, okay, here's God's command. Here's what people are asking me to do. I'm going to go with this one. Nope. Not something you get to decide. If you have a choice between obeying God and obeying man... You're supposed to obey God. And because Saul chose to do what the people wanted him to do as opposed to what God wanted him to do, that was a pretty clear indication that, all right, this guy is no longer fit to be God's anointed king. And then finally, and this is sort of going along with the rationale that was given, not only was Saul bending to public opinion and, and doing what the people wanted instead of what God wanted, 
but he was trying to defer responsibility for that. That's another very unking-like, unleadership, uh, that's not even a word, a very unleader-like quality to have. Because if you're somebody that is supposed to be leading people, if you're somebody that is supposed to be helping people see them see you as an example as what to do and how to follow God, this isn't it. When you look up and go, oh, well, yeah, I did it, but, you know, the people made me do it. Well, that's the same thing that Adam said about Eve. Oh, well, yeah, I did it, but here's the reason why I did it. Saul doesn't take responsibility. See, what a leader does is say, yeah, there were other people that may have influenced my decision, but the buck stops here. Saul was the one responsible, and it should have been Saul that went out and said, look, Samuel hasn't arrived yet. We will wait for him in the Lord's blessing. And if people leave, they leave. If we go in with a smaller force, that's fine. I would rather put my faith in God than my army. And remember that when his predecessor, David, actually did the same thing, God punished him for doing the same thing too, putting his faith in his army as opposed to God. See, when you put your faith in God, you say, you know what, we have to go with a few less troops. Oh, well. I would rather have God in the host. I would rather have God in the, the backfield than I would extra people anyway. And that was really where Saul messed up. And I think it's very obvious that the reason that this replacement was about to take place is because Daniel, or sorry, Daniel, David did the exact opposite. There were many times where David had people, for example, when he was about to take Saul's life, urging him on, egging him on, saying, hey, David, look, you got to go ahead and do it. It's for the good of the country. It's for your good. God has already said that he's going to deliver us all into your hands. And, and David says, no. That would be raising my hand against God's anointed, and I will not do that. I don't care what anyone else says. That's a leader. That's a person that is after God's own heart. And what happened when David screwed up? What happened when David made his great sin with Bathsheba? We get one of the most beautiful repentant psalms in the entire Bible where he says that I have sinned and I alone. David didn't blame anybody else. He put the blame right where it belonged himself and he begged God for forgiveness. Saul's over here trying to deflect blame and say, no, 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 it was really the people's fault. That's the reason I did what I did even though I knew it was wrong. See, there's a very, very stark contrast between the two. David, even though he wasn't always obedient, had a heart for obedience, and when he did mess up, he always went back to God, took responsibility, asked for forgiveness. And his disobedience wasn't because he decided it was better to, to play along with and do what men wanted him to do rather than God. There's a very stark contrast between these two people. And I think that's really what it all boils down to is we can talk about some of the tangential issues, but ultimately it comes down to a question of, do you want to follow God or do you want to follow men? Because Saul followed men and we see how that turned out for him. David followed God and we saw how that turned out for him. If we want to be a David, that when there's pressure and people are expecting us to make a decision and we have to choose what direction we're going to go, 
We have to ignore what the world tells us that we need to do and be obedient to God. And that's how to be a David and not a Saul. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. Only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.